Friends, today's compelling theme is AIDS, Sex Education, and Community Responsibility. Today's speaker is Dr. Saul Gordon of Belmont, California, an educator who taught at Syracuse University for many years, a man with a distinguished career as a clinical psychologist, sex educator, and author. Your host today is the same as seven or eight times a year over the past 10 years, the Westminster Town Hall Forum. The overarching rubric that drives today's forum remains the same while being ever new, we trust. Voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. And I, Donald Meisel, minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, persist today as your moderator, and I delight in doing so. Dr. Saul Gordon needs added introduction only to say that he has written over 100 articles in professional publications and, yes, some 15 books. Two books which he has in the back of his mind as he comes to us today are When Living Hurts and Why Love is Not Enough, both published in 1988. Dr. Gordon, you expressed a wish for a brief introduction. Well, there you have it. Welcome to this podium. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I have good news first. Knowledge is not harmful. <laughs> Write that down. Spread it around as a rumor. As a matter of fact, all opposition to sex education in this country is based on the assumption that if you tell kids about sex, they'll do it. That is total, unadulterated nonsense. All our research reveals that young people who are knowledgeable, they're the ones who delay their first sexual experience, and when they have sex, they're more responsible. Ignorance is harmful, unresolved curiosity is harmful, but not knowledge. And yet, if we're going to be talking about AIDS and sexually transmitted diseases, if we're going to talk about any of these things, we're going to have to talk about sex. And yet, in some states, they have mandated AIDS education, providing that you don't talk about sex, masturbation, contraception, homosexuality, and the anus. How can you talk about AIDS without talking about any of those issues? And what's so strange in this country, 85% of the American public favors sex education in the schools. The Gallup poll, the Roper poll, the New York Times poll, the Time Magazine poll, and we do not have sex education in American schools. We have courses in plumbing, <laughs> a relentless pursuit of the fallopian tubes. All we need is three or four extremists who go to any school district and, and, and they go to the superintendent and principal and they say, oh, oh, we don't want you to impose your values on our school children. And the principal responds by saying, don't worry, Mr. Jones, we have no values. <laughs> and yet, we are the people who are responsible. 
If 85% of the American public favors sex education schools, why do we not have sex education schools? And we don't need everybody's support. All we need is 12 people on our side who, who, who will represent us, the mainstream. And you know who else did well with 12. <laughs> Even if you lose one. <laughs> and some of you still don't know what I'm talking about. We're not giving young people the messages that can help them, help them appreciate what's going on in this country. We have a devastation. We have not made very much progress in the area of sexuality. There are still a million, a million pregnancies among teenagers, four million new cases of venereal disease, and we're not even talking about AIDS. There are over a million new cases of gonorrhea and chlamydia, and and young women are asymptomatic to gonorrhea and chlamydia, the leading cause of infertility among people, young people between 20 and 30 is untreated, undiagnosed gonorrhea and chlamydia. And yet, what do we say to young people? Just say no. Imagine uh, using this cheap slogan to talk to young people who are depressed, who are alienated, who have lifelong histories of despair. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have some more good news. I have created a whole new slogan, equally ineffectual, <laughs> but far superior. Just say no, thank you. I happen to be very conservative. I don't even think teenagers should have sex. And a teenager is somebody under 18. I don't even think teenagers should have sex. They're too young, they're too vulnerable, they're too readily available for exploitation. Even committed relationships are spoiled by premature sex. They don't know that the first experience of sex is grim. How many of you had a really good first sexual experience as a teenager? Raise your hands. You see nobody. <laughs> Almost no, almost no girl will have an orgasm the first time she has sex. The boy gets his orgasm three days later when he tells the guys about it. <laughs> so I don't think teenagers should have sex. But between 60 and 65% of all young people will have sexual intercourse, whether I like it or not, before they finish high school, and whether they like it or not. And do we have no messages for them? Do we have only messages for people who don't need our messages in the first place? Can we only communicate to people who, who don't need our help, who have strong families, who, who have strong religious values? Are those the only people we communicate to? And that's the message. The just say no messages are communicating to people who don't need our help in the first place. We need to talk to vulnerable young people. We need to people, we need to talk to young people who are not listening to us. And we and we're not we're not reaching them. We have only dumb things to say to them. 
If you have sex before marriage, you'll have nothing to look forward to in marriage. There'll be no surprises in marriage. Well, if that's the only surprise in marriage, I say don't marry. <laughs> Imagine marrying for sex. You've got to be an idiot to marry for sex. We don't give messages that young people can understand and appreciate. How can we talk about AIDS if we don't talk about sex? If we have only one message, abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. We did a survey among 100 high school college-bound kids. We asked them what abstinence meant. Not one knew. Some of them thought it had to do with abstinence makes the heart grow fonder. I don't think they should have sex, but they're having sex. What kind of message do we have for young people? We have to give the double message. In the same way that we, society is not ready for a single message. We have the highest rate of unwanted pregnancy, venereal disease, and abortions of any developed country in the world. Our rate is much higher than Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Holland, Germany, England. Ours is much, much higher. And all those countries, of course, are decadent. We need to give the double message. You remember 25 years ago when we, we, we created this anti-smoking campaign? And the doctor who told the patient not to smoke, smoked. The, the teacher who told the kids not to smoke, smoked. The, the, the parent who told the kids not to smoke, smoked. No wonder we, make, we made no progress. Now, 85% of all doctors are not smoking. We're beginning to have some credibility. The teachers are not smoking. The parents are not smoking. We're beginning to have a little credibility with smoking. And say with drinking alcohol, don't drink, don't drink, but everybody's drinking, everybody. The, the priest is drinking, the, the rabbi is drinking, the, the minister is drinking, e even Methodists are drinking these days. <laughs> so how are we giving this message? We had better give the double message if you get swept away and if you drink anyway. For heaven's sakes, for heaven's sakes, don't drive. Even a single drink will, 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 uh, will, uh, will impair judgment. Even adults who drink, there's some adults, haven't you noticed some adults, they have just one drink and they'll tell you about all their marital problems. And we don't even want to hear about them. <laughs> so we have to give the double message. If, you, if you're going to drink, don't drive. And if you plan to get pregnant, don't drink. And if you... <laughs> but if you don't want to get pregnant, don't drink either, because alcohol is a big factor in teenage pregnancy. And sex, we're going to have to give the double message. We're going to have to say, listen, if you're not going to listen to me, I, 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 uh, I want you to use contraception. We're going to have to say that. And where is this ridiculous idea coming from that, that uh, uh, we're trying to condomize America. Where is this absurd idea that if you use the condom, if we tell kids about sex, they'll do it, and, and by talking about birth control and condoms, we're, 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 we're increasing promiscuity.
10% of young people, 10% of young people having sex these days use any reliable form of contraception. Now, now, where's this idea that contraception increases promiscuity? Where did, they, where did this dumb idea come from? And then they say, oh, oh, but the condom isn't 100% safe. Well, I have news for you. If you don't use the condom, you take 100% risk. Nothing's 100% safe. What kind of an argument is that? We have to talk about the condom. Would you like, and, and young people who are vulnerable, we have to talk about kids who are at risk, kids who are vulnerable, because I, I have to tell you something, most of the people who, who had AIDS in the early stages acquired AIDS during their adolescent years. The latency period is almost 10 years. And the average, 40 to 50 percent of, of, of people who had AIDS had AIDS between the ages of, of 20 and, and 30, and, and uh, they acquired uh, AIDS while they were still teenagers. And don't you think we don't have to worry about women? And don't you think we don't have to worry about heterosexuality? And don't you think we don't have to worry about all these things? We have to worry about it all. And people who are vulnerable at risk, they can only tolerate 30-second messages. And we give them big lectures and curriculums. Would you like to hear my 30-second birth control message? With that level of enthusiasm, I can't be bothered. <laughs> I'm offering you a 30-second birth control message. I tell kids not to have sex. We don't have any drama on our side. We just have rational thinking, intelligent people. But we don't have drama. We don't have hysteria. Hysteria and drama is all on the other side. We need a little excitement on our side. To, we represent the mainstream. We're the ones who care about people. We're the ones who, who want to serve those at risk, not just people who don't need our help in the first place with the Just Say No programs. I'll give you one more chance. <laughs> Would you like to hear my 30-second birth control message? Well, now there's hope for Minnesota. We have to give them messages that they understand. I tell them not to have sex. But if you're not going to listen to me, if you're not going to listen to your parents, you're not going to listen to the ministers. If you girls, I say, if you girls are not on the pill, if you're going to have sex anyway, if you girls are not on the pill, I want you to use foam. Be sure to put it in before you have sex. And if a boy can't afford 50 cents for a condom, he's too cheap to be allowed in. Young people understand the word cheap. They don't understand when we talk. When we, we say we want you to be responsible, they have no idea what you're talking about. And they understand another word. Oh, you hear young people say, oh, 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 it's so romantic just to let it happen. No, honey, it's not romantic just to let it happen. It's stupid. They understand that too. Oh, I want it to be spontaneous. Never heard of a spontaneous boy who's planning and organizing this thing for years.
As a matter of fact, I'm opposed to all forms of spontaneity until you're about 40. In the meantime, I want you to do your homework. We're going to be talking about AIDS in the churches and in the schools and the synagogues. We're going to have to get across the message that all people, no matter what their values, lifestyle, or behavior, have the right to receive the information and skills that will protect them from, against HIV infection. We have to stand good for that message. And we have to counteract these extremists, people who do not represent the mainstream of, of, of religion and spirituality. I come from a religious tradition myself, and I'm so, so angry at people who go around saying things like this whole homophobic response we've gotten, where people are saying, oh, oh, if God wanted homosexuals, he would have created Adam and Steve. What if I said if God wanted black people, he would have created Adam and Sheba? What would you call me, religious, or would you call me a bigot? What about people who are debating in this day and age, in this day and age of so-called enlightenment, that the, uh, AIDS is God's punishment of the homosexual? What if I said... Look what God did to the American Legion. He gave them Legionnaire's disease. <laughs> Challenge my reasoning. It seems to me the God I believe in has different messages. God says, love thy neighbor as thyself. And God has un enduring mysteries for all of us if we, if we really believe. But if somebody is a bigot and uses religion as a guise for their bigotry, as a way of imposing their particular beliefs on the rest of us, then we have to, we have to cry out. Opposition to the condom is a religious issue. It's not a health issue. It's not a moral issue. In the same way that some religious groups oppose uh, blood transfusions and some groups oppose using the doctors, they're entitled to their religion, but they're not entitled to impose their views on all of us, on the rest of us, on, and not entitled to influence the curriculum in the public schools. And we need to rethink a, a whole, and, and, and I'm so thrilled to be part of this group because th this group at least is taking the social conscience seriously. I'm so fed up with religious groups that talk about all this decadence, all this decadence out there, all this decadence. What is the role of the church and the synagogue in saying, how come the people are so much more interested in all this decadence than anything we have to offer? We have to examine our role as spiritual people. Why, why are we not so interesting, so attractive, so exciting, but all this decadence out there is, is incredible.
we have not made any progress in getting through to young people in the issue of AIDS. There's no increase in the use of, of, of responsible behavior among young people. We have not reduced sex, sex, sexual behavior among young people at all. We have not done so, and we had better find a way of saying, listen, if you're not going to listen to us, use contraception. We had better find a way of saying it. And instead of just saying, no, don't stop, we, we created scare tactics that, that nobody's listening to us. The message that young people are getting these days is what? Sex equal death. Wait until you're married before you die. No wonder young people are not paying any attention to us because we don't have messages that make sense. We talk only to the, to the faithful and the committed and people who do not lead our messages in the first place. We're going to have to rethink our priorities. We're going to have to put sexuality into perspective. If I was to think of the 10 most important things in a relationship, we had better talk about self-esteem. We had better talk, because all these people are vulnerable. They have low self-esteem. And we better talk, we better put all this thing, in, we better put it all into perspective. If I was to think of the 10 most important things in a relationship, my curriculum for sex education, my curriculum is, is the agenda of the women's movement. That's the agenda of my sex education, the real meaning of the women's movement has to do the real meaning of the women's movement is equal opportunity the real definition is equal opportunities for decision making for career choice for leisure and equal pay for equal work that's the real meaning of the women's movement but people are saying oh women are becoming aggressive everywhere you go aggressive women the result is impotent men everywhere I have news for you for every impotent man that has resulted from the women's movement 10,000 of us have become liberated and where did I get those statistics? I made them up. They make up theirs, and I'll make up mine. Women have become assertive, and if they don't get their legitimate rights, they become aggressive. That's the meaning. That's my agenda. If I was to think of the 10 most important things in a relationship, number one is intimacy. That's what the real turn on in a relationship is friendship, intimacy, trusting, committing, committing each other to each other's growth and development. The second most important thing in a relationship is a sense of humor. Please do not have any teenage children unless you have a sense of humor. <laughs> And the third most important thing in a relationship is, is communication. They say if you see a man and a woman and they're not talking to each other in a resort, they're married. <laughs> or they may be talking to each other and married, but not to each other. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you got it so far. Number one is intimacy. Number two is a sense of humor. Number three is communication. Number nine is sex in order of importance. And number 10 is sharing household tasks together. Now my wife thinks that number 10 should be number three, but since I made up the list. 
If we're going to talk about prevention, we better talk about friendship. We better talk about responsible sexuality. We better talk about all this stuff. We have to put this stuff into perspective because otherwise they won't understand. I didn't understand stuff like that when I was growing up. I didn't understand stuff like that when I was growing up. I, I came from a from a big religious family. We, we had these big religious festivals. The women fixed the meal. The women served the meal. The, the, and, and when the meal was over, we men went over to the living room. And, and you know what we did? We, we discussed the important matters. We discussed should we recognize China. And the women were cleaning it. It seemed like a good arrangement to me. And so when I married, I married a professional woman. And we both, we both, we both worked outside the home, but she did all the cooking and the cleaning, the shopping, the cooking, the cleaning, the shopping, the washing the dishes, the taking care of the child, the shopping, the cleaning. I was busy. Until one day she said to me not too long after we were married, hey, I'm busy too. How would you like to have a divorce? It took me five minutes to rearrange my schedule. Unlike some men and liberated men, I still don't like to cook and clean and shop and do any of these things, but I'm doing it now. I'm doing it now because I have an assertive wife and I don't want her to become aggressive. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about AIDS education. I'm talking about prevention. I'm talking, and I'm talking uh, about giving messages to young people that they can appreciate and understand. And now I'm going to take just a few minutes and tell you the story of my life. <laughs> when I started out, I was going to save the world. I was going to save the whole world. And then I looked around and I saw that the world was getting worse and worse and worse while I was saving it and I became very depressed. So I thought maybe I had taken on too much. So I thought I would just save the United States. <laughs> and while I was saving the United States, the world, United States got worse and worse and worse. And I got very depressed, so I thought maybe I would just save my own neighborhood. And my neighbors were furious. They told me to mind my own business. And I got very depressed and I thought maybe I was in the wrong profession. So I considered going to Harvard and get an MBA, but that seemed so close to committing suicide <laughs> that I thought I'd better stay in my profession. And you know what? You know what? You know what? I got very depressed. And then I thought maybe I would just save my own family. And I was having a hard time with my own family. And it taught me something very profound. It taught me, it taught me not to be a hero in somebody else's situation. Don't be a hero in somebody else's situation. It's so easy to tell other people what to do and how to live and, and, how, and, and, and how to settle all their problems. And I got, and I realized because I had troubles in my own family, I had a choice. I could be angry, hostile, paranoid, but I could also be kind and, and sympathetic and empathic. And I made the choice because I was having troubles and because I understood this and I understood these larger messages. I was going to be kind, sympathetic and empathic, but I was still, it was helpful to me, but I was still depressed. And when I get depressed, I go to the Torah or the Talmud, which is the, which is the uh, commentary on the Torah, the Old Testament. And I came upon something that saved my life. 
It says in, in the Talmud, if you can save one person, it's as though you have saved the world. I have shifted from saving the world to saving one person, and that's what I'm encouraging you to do. We need to give messages. We need to gladden the hearts of those who are despairing, who are alienated, not by saving the world. Find some way of helping, of, of supporting somebody who's vulnerable, somebody who has low self-esteem. Save one person, you'll become energized. It's, it comes, it, the whole idea comes from mitzvah. A mitzvah, is, it, it comes from the Old Testament. In the religious priest, following all the religious precepts for contemporary usage, it means to do good deeds without any anticipation of return. It's not like charity we, we, we get a tax return for. It's not like saying, if you be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. That's blackmail. A mitzvah, and this is what I'm encouraging you to do. If we want to turn this world around, we have to go for mitzvahs. We have to turn this world from a me. This is not the me decade. This is the mean decade. We have to turn the 1990s into a mitzvah decade. Help one person, support one person. It's so energizing. And don't boast, don't tell anybody you're saving one person. Don't ask anybody, because if you ask a, uh, somebody who's your boss or your supervisor or your, or, or your principal, and if you ask them, can I save this one person, they'll just say no. <laughs> Thank you. Announcement: Pastor Tim Fuzzy needs to come to the office uh, promptly for uh, an important message. Dr. Gordon, you said that hysteria and drama were all on the other side. I think the balance has just shifted. To the radio audience, uh, let me simply remind that uh, you've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, that the speaker that you have just heard is Dr. Saul Gordon, psychologist, sex educator, author. He was and is Professor Emeritus of Syracuse University's Institute for Family Research and Education, and his theme, very dramatically and feelingly presented AIDS, sex education, and community responsibility. Let me remind the audience, the live audience here today, and you are all very much alive as I read your reactions, uh, do send your questions to the aisles that they might be picked up now and brought forward that we might uh, deal with them promptly. Uh, let me add that the James R. Thorpe Foundation uh, is our co-sponsor today and we welcome their support. So let the questions come forward, and sir, would you return to the podium? Um, I have one that was given me in advance, and perhaps you'd respond to it. What is the responsibility of religious congregations in addressing the myriad of problems associated with AIDS, the, the role of the, the religious community? 
the role of the religious community, the spiritual community is, is uh, multifold and uh, apart from being supportive and, and, and helpful to people who have AIDS and, and, and provide them with the support and help that they need, I would say we have to challenge we have to challenge the, the, the bigotry and the hostility and the anger that comes from uh, small sections of the population that try to victimize the victim twice by saying it's their fault that they've gotten a disease or that it's God's uh, retribution. That's the main thrust. It's not only, it's not only to provide spiritual guidance and comfort and material support, it's to provide a kind of counter-message that says, we, you have an illness, and we understand illnesses, and we are going to support and help you. Mm -hmm. Another question, what communities are doing a good job with AIDS education? What qualities characterize their efforts? Uh, the best, of course, is Minneapolis. <laughs> and St. Paul, and as witnessed by the Conference of Religious Leaders today, but also San Francisco that has mobilized itself. The real, there's uh, been an enormous decrease in new cases of AIDS among homosexuals. There's been an enormous increase of AIDS among women, babies, and of course, IV drug users, enormous increase. How do you suggest, this kind of refers back to an earlier question, how do you suggest teaching sex education in church and synagogue without losing your job? My presentation today was only for people who have tenure and job security. <laughs> and I have some advice for those of you who are organizing programs and have task force who in the public schools and the churches and the synagogues, if you have a sex education task force, decide in advance what constitutes a quorum and also what constitutes uh, consensus. So many, literally thousands of task forces on, on sex education have been uh, destroyed, eliminated, rendered worthless because of the, of the notion that a task force means unanimity. Unanimity is fascism. Decide in advance, decide in advance that it's two-thirds or 60% of the people because you can have one extremist on a task force and the whole program is not only finished, but it's worse than what you had before. The next question from the audience. The, the Conference of Catholic Bishops last week stated that the use of condoms and the distribution of sterilized needle, needles were unacceptable practices in the prevention of AIDS. What is your feeling in regard to the bishop's position on this matter? That's a religious point of view, which I don't agree with. It's a religious point of view. It's not a moral point of view. It's not a health point of view. It's a religious point of view, just in the same way as people who are against blood transfusions have a religious point of view. It's not a health point of view, and it's not a moral point of view. And people have no right to impose their particular point of view, certainly not on the public schools.
In written information to teens, how can we communicate without preaching and therefore be discounted? What themes and language is acceptable, especially among most high-risk teens? When I go to a school, my only subject is, the will, topic I'm willing to talk to in the high school is how can you tell if you're really in love? And I can include everything in that. And you know what I do? I research the lines that boys use. What's the ultimate line? What's the ultimate line? If you really love me, you'll have sex with me. It's a universal line. It's a disaster. Look how clever that line is. It, there's no alternative. Of course, your daughters know exactly what to say. Your sophisticated daughters will say, oh, I don't really love you, so it doesn't matter. But everybody else's daughters, they really love this guy. So why don't we teach them how to respond to the lines that sometimes boys use. And by the way, girls use lines too these days. You know, girls sometimes say things like, where have you been all my life? The boy has to respond by saying, hiding from you. <laughs> and, and, and if in a vulnerable, high-risk situation, if a boy says, oh, oh, honey, oh, sweetie pie, if you really love me, you'll have sex with me. Well, she, uh, maybe she loves him. But, but maybe we, we better teach her to say, listen, honey, I really love you, but do you have a condom? Oh, he says, honey bunch, I get no feelings out of a condom. She must immediately reply by saying, all the other boys I know get plenty of feelings out of a condom. What's the matter with you? He says, I get no pleasure out of using a condom. Then she has to say, then you won't get any pleasure at all. I mean, what's his little pleasure compared to her pregnancy? What's his little pleasure compared to her AIDS? What's his little pleasure compared to her venereal disease and pregnancy? What is this little pleasure that they're talking about? We've got to give messages, and, and the whole notion of once a boy starts, he can't stop. Where is that established? It's not in the Old Testament. <laughs> it's not even in the news. How could it be true some boy made it up? Boys can stop. Somehow boys have this notion that once you start, you can't stop. It's like the penis has a mind of its own, you know, and knows exactly where to go. And it's always the girl's fault. She said hello. What clues do you have to help us reach the adult gatekeepers, teachers, school boards, etc., who limit the conversations, discussions about real sex education? We, we, we've, we've, got to take, we've got to take an interest in the people who are on the school boards. We've got to vote in, we've got to somehow get the right people into the school boards because that's the key issue. They have to provide the leadership and the direction and, and indicate that we, we've got to start out with the assumption and, and prove to them that knowledge is not harmful. You know, if you want research, you've got one of the best research organizations in the whole country, right here in Minneapolis, the Search Institute, which does, does all this good research, which, which demonstrates so clearly uh, what, what can be done with knowledge and, and how it inhibits inappropriate behavior. That's what we ought to do. Another question from the audience. There are a number of 
high school age young people in this gathering today, and we certainly, certainly do welcome them. There was the suggestion that we recognize in particular, it says, would you acknowledge the young people in attendance from North, Roosevelt, and South? So we do welcome them. But then, as a student in a conservative private school, how does one raise the issue of AIDS and AIDS education within the school? What can a student do to uh, introduce contraception, et cetera? Whenever I go to a community, people say to me in advance, Dr. Gordon, you're going to a conservative community. My response is, aren't you lucky? I speak only to conservative communities. And the title of my book is Raising a Child Conservatively in a Sexually Permissive World. We are conservatives. We can't allow the extremists to, to take on that term. We, we, are, we are the people who care about families. We, we're the people who care about children. We're the conservators. We, 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 we believe we are conservative people. And people say, oh, oh, but you're controversial. If you're not controversial, you have nothing to say. Write that down. <laughs> Spread it around as a rumor. This is a democracy. And just, just excite those principles and, and the students get the students together and say, we are conservative students. We want controversial issues discussed in our school because we understand controversy is the democratic way of life. Start with that and let some principal argue with you. Let him write to me and I'll tell him something. Another question, how do you respond when someone says that they only have compassion for the innocent victims of AIDS, uh, hemophiliacs, children, etc., but not for the gay population? I have nothing to say to you. I have nothing to say to people who do not even follow the dictates, I'm sure, of their own religion, which says, love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the essential message that I get from the God I believe in. What else can you say? Is it true that California is closing school clinics because they have not proved effective in preventing teen pregnancy? If so, what is the answer? That's not true. And as a matter of fact, the reason why they're closing them is because of uh, religious uh, issues. It has nothing to do with effectiveness whatsoever. We had a million pregnancies last year. If we didn't have organizations like family planning, uh, the, the various uh, children's uh, adolescent centers here that you have in Minneapolis and St. Paul, we wouldn't have a million pregnancies. We'd have two million pregnancies. We're in a disaster. We're in a disaster because 60 to 70% of all young people are having mainly unprotected sexual intercourse. Another question written out on a large piece of paper, and that's fine. What suggestions do you have for a church, synagogue, or school when they are confronted with an AIDS victim within their midst the first time? How do we prevent the hysteria 
that may accompany the discovery that someone we know and must deal with has AIDS. That has to do entirely with leadership. It has to do with the rabbi, with the minister, with the priest. They have to provide leadership. If they don't provide leadership for, for a sensitive spiritual issue, if they don't convey what scientifically we know is the truth about uh, AIDS, then they, they are not responsible leaders, and you should leave that church or synagogue. How do you like that for a dramatic answer? We need leadership among our religious folks, and if you don't have leadership, then you have to go elsewhere and find leadership. Or if you can't turn it around, first try to turn it around. I don't fool around. I'm going to read the next two questions together. Uh, in that you are so concerned about communicating, why within the context of sex education and AIDS do you seem to only use heterosexual examples and language, that is marriage, wife? Why should I think I count if I am a homosexual listening to you, or your, your language discounts me, why should I listen? And then, uh, how do you propose introducing the inclusion of the study of homosexuality into school curriculums? As a gay single father, I feel at a loss to bring this issue forward without stigmatizing my child. You didn't listen to me. I was the one who brought up homophobia. <laughs> I was the one who attacked uh, the ones who, who, uh, uh, who create homophobic uh, illusions in, in, in the religious community. You can't include everybody in everything you say. 90% of the people are, are going to get married or heterosexual. I'm very clear about my own. Uh, I, I think it's, it's wrong to be anti-gay. And we, we've got to give the messages that uh, maybe 10% of the population is gay. And, and we don't know why exactly. We used to know, um, you know, if you had a strong mother and a weak father, psh, gay, you know. And uh, we're beginning to discover, certainly in research in Minneapolis, 75% of of families consist of strong mothers and weak fathers, you know, and that's why people are moving to the suburbs, you know. We've got to, we've got to ridicule this whole notion about what gay is all about. In my judgment, and it's very clear, we're all created by God. That's, I'm a religious person, and, and homosexuals are created equally in the eyes of the Lord, and that's what I believe in, and that's very clear in the way I give messages. What do you say to young people? It's hard to say. We know it's, it, it, it's, it, it is a huge amount of, of, of homophobia in our society, and, uh, and it's very difficult, but we just got to tell them the truth, that some people are constitutionally homosexual, and, and some people discover it when they're older and later in life, and that's it. We have no idea why people are homosexual, except that we know they are all God's creatures. That's what we know. And the only definition of homosexuality that I use is a person in his or her adult life who has and prefers relations with members of the same sex. When you're a teenager, 
we, we encourage people to kind of wait and hold off and decide what you are when you go to college and, and come out of the closet if you want to, uh, only when you're sure of being self-supporting. And some people don't like that, but I don't care. I've seen so many people devastated by being encouraged to come out of the closet prematurely. It's, there's virtually no high school in this country who can, which can tolerate a, a kid who, who says he's openly gay. But we have to provide some support system, and it's wrong to attack gay people. It's wrong. It, it's, it, 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 it's not okay to be anti-gay. It's not. Next question, how do you feel about peer educators or youth teaching youth? I like the idea, it's a good idea, uh, but they need to be trained. And I have some messages for these young people here too. I want you to know that sex is never a test of love. It's never a proof of love. You can be sexually attracted to someone you can't even have a conversation with. You can be sexually attracted to parts of people. If you want to test a relationship, hold off having sex. If you want to test a relationship, hold off having sex. See if they care about you rather than your body. Do you agree with mandatory AIDS testing in schools and the workplace? Uh, certainly not in the schools. I don't know. I, I have ambivalent attitudes about that. And, and in a sense, until society is more ready uh, for accepting of people who are homosexual, until we have anti-discrimination laws, then I'm, I, I'm not favoring mandatory testing. But at the point in which we have uh, laws which uh, are very clear about not discrimination, as they do have in some states, uh, then, then maybe mandated, uh, mandatory testing in some situations would be appropriate. Next question. We teach young children from the time they leave the hospital when they are born to use a car seat or seat belts. Why don't we start sex education, AIDS education at a much younger age? So the children grow up with the belief or the value that it's God's plan to wait until marriage to have sex. I don't know if it's God's plan. It's certainly not in the Old Testament. If you know the Old Testament, there's nothing about God's plan about marriage. <laughs> Waiting till marriage. And there's also not even, in, in, not even anything about just having one wife. I mean, so I'm not sure what God's plan is. I think it's a good idea to wait until marriage. I really do. I hope you don't give the impression that if you wait, you're going to have a simultaneous orgasm on your wedding night. Because then they're going to come back to you and they're going to say, for this, I waited. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I think it's OK to wait, you see, but not for the reasons that some people think. And, and, uh, and sure, we need sex education. Parents are the sex educators of their own children, whether they well, do it well or badly, and they might as well do it well and use the correct terminology. Well, what is all this wee-wee, pee-pee, gaga? What kind of language is that? 
use penis, vulva, vagina, those are the correct words, and, and they're the correct words to say in a church as well, and if you can't say those words, practice. Like tonight, all of you in front of a mirror, 10 penises, 10 vulvas out loud, 10 vaginas. If you all say it at 10 o'clock, all of St. Paul and Minneapolis will resound with penises, vulvas, vaginas. We'll finally liberate this community. Question, why are Sweden, Denmark, and the Netherlands more successful in preventing AIDS and unwanted pregnancies. They're successful because they have a mandated sex education program that's been in, in place in Sweden for over 40 years, from, from K through 12. It's an excellent program. It's mandated. And you know what else they have? They have ready availability of contraception. All those countries have ready availability of contraception. You can get contraception in the schools. It's not that the Swedes, the Swedish youth have sex less. They do have a tendency to start a little later. They do have a tendency to be more monogamous. But they have sex. Young people have sex. But uh, because of mandated sex education, they know what's going on. And because of ready availability of contraception, uh, they don't get pregnant. You know, on, we have the, t the, the, the most volatile issue in America today is, is abortion, isn't it? We have to unite both forces, the so-called pro-life, the so-called pro-choice people, and we have to unite them. We have, to, we have to prevent the pregnancy in the first place. We need a unifying force that says we have to all get together. They're perfectly normal, moral people on both sides of the issue. We stop the, better stop calling each other names, and, 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 and we have to at least let's unite to try to prevent the pregnancy in the first place. That's the unity. That's the spiritual unity. Another in the audience writes, why is it that they say young people are too young to know what sex is about? So, what is sex really about? I don't know. <laughs> it's one of those enduring mysteries, you know. Uh, I, I know people who have sexual intercourse uh, with people they don't even like. Uh, they hate each other, and they're people who have wonderful marriages who, whose sex life is emerging, developing. It's, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think I'm trying to, I'm, uh, uh, this whole notion that the best part, the best part of, of, of intimacy is not sex. The best part of intimacy is, is caring for each other, trusting each other. You know, I'm, I'm trying to spread the rumor that the a whole new rumor, the best orgasm for young people is foot massage. Write it down, pass it around as a rumor. <laughs> Pay attention, you young people. Another question, what do you do with a child's natural shyness about dis discussing sexuality? If you are an askable parent, your children will ask you questions at three and at four and at five. Answer them and don't tell them to keep it confidential. Parents who give misinformation never tell their children to keep it confidential. The result is that children who are misinformed, they become the sex educators in the neighborhood. It's about time that our children became the sex educators in the neighborhood. And if your neighbor doesn't like it, get another neighbor. Why do we always have to move? 
25% of children, however, are shy and will not ask questions. If your child hasn't asked you questions by time they're three, four, and five, it's your responsibility to tell. Get a hold of these books called, uh, you know, Did the Sun Shine Before You Were Born? By the way, there's a whole list of, of publications outside. Get a hold of them. Educate yourself. Parents are the main sex educators of their own children. Educate your grandchildren. Dr. Gordon, I have a fistful of questions yet to be posed, but the hour is uh, drawing to a close that we can do this over the air anyway. I promise all of you who sent questions that have not been posed that they'll be put in Dr. Gordon's hands and uh, dealt with one way and another, I'm certain. I'm looking at a page from the back of uh, one of your more recent books, sir. It, it reads as follows, or rather it's in the introduction. I write for people of all faiths, little faith, no faith, and for those still searching for a faith. I write to encourage you to stand for something, otherwise you may fall for anything. You've helped us stand for something that we might not fall for everything, and we thank you.